salvation. The son purchased salvation. But for that salvation, that forgiveness of sins, that new creation to get applied to our lives, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. John 3, Jesus talks about the fact that, you know, unless you're born of water and of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The spirit is absolutely essential for salvation. Last week was Pentecost. I was not here, but Pastor Ryan was, and he preached on the giving of the Holy Spirit. So some of what I say today may or may not overlap with what he said um, last week. We'll be looking at John chapter 16. Um, Jackie already read the passage for us. Um, I'm hoping you'll follow along as we as we look at this passage today. In this passage, Jesus gives us uh, three answers to the question, why the Holy Spirit? Why the Holy Spirit? Now, there are certainly more answers to this question that are provided in the New Testament. But Jesus provides three answers here in this text. And those are the three answers we're going to be looking at today. And I'll just fill in the blanks for number one already. The Holy Spirit is for your benefit. This is just a general kind of answer, but the Holy Spirit is for your good. It's for your benefit. Look at verses 5 through 7 in our text. And now I am going away, Jesus says, but now I am going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. So the disciples are filled with grief that Jesus is leaving shortly. But Jesus going away is actually good news, though they don't understand it at the time. And why is that? It's because then the Spirit can come. In the long-range plans of God for our salvation, it is better that the Son depart and the Holy Spirit come. Now, Jesus here doesn't specify why this is the case, but we can certainly reason as to why this is true. Jesus was localized in, in one body. He was one person in one place. For example, when Jesus was teaching at a home in Capernaum, there was so, the house was filled and there were so many people that some people couldn't even get in to hear him. But the Holy Spirit is everywhere present. The Holy Spirit is given and he is everywhere present. He comes down on the 120 and he is with how many of those individuals? All 120 and then they disperse and he is still with all of those individuals. Further, Jesus was not always with the disciples. For example, on one occasion, he was up on a mountaintop praying and his disciples were on a boat on the lake in the midst of a storm and Jesus was not with him. Jesus could be with the disciples sometimes, but the spirit is in you and me always. The Holy Spirit is with us always. So Jesus says, it is for your benefit that I go away and send the counselor to you. And we see the truth of this in the disciples themselves. Think of the difference of the disciples before Pentecost and after Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit came and after the Holy Spirit came. Think of them before the Spirit came. They deserted Jesus, right? They denied, Peter denied him. They were in hiding. Some went back to their fishing. And then Pentecost came and Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit on them. And what a change. All of a sudden now they are preaching with boldness about Jesus. And that in the face of stiff opposition. They were jailed and they still continued to preach. Stephen was martyred. And then the Apostle James was martyred and they still continued to witness. What was it that changed them? 
It's not. It's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's the answer. It's the Holy Spirit inside of them. They were transformed by the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within them. Truly, it was for their good that Jesus went away, that the Spirit might come. If you are a genuine Christian, the Holy Spirit resides within you. He is working in you, and he is working through you. Some say, you know, how great it would have been to live back in the days of Jesus, to be there with him, to hear him uh, preach the Sermon on the Mount, um, to, 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 to see him heal, to see him raise Lazarus from the dead. But we are not the less privileged for not having lived in that day. The disciples walked with Jesus, but then after Pentecost, they walked in the Spirit. And we, like they, also walk in the very same Spirit of God, in the very same Spirit of Christ. The same Spirit who came down at Pentecost is with each of us today, enabling us to minister to one another and to live out our Christian calling. Why the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is for your benefit. And then he gives a couple specifics. The next two reasons are a little bit two reasons are a little bit more specific. Number two, the Holy Spirit convicts the world. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. Verse eight says, "When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and just and judgment." Now, what does the word "convict" mean? It has two meanings has at least two meanings. One of them is to indict, to render a verdict. The Holy Spirit indicts the world and pronounces judgment on the world for its guilt. But it also has a second meaning, to make someone feel their guilt and remorse at what they've done. The Holy Spirit helps people to come under conviction, if you will, to feel convicted about their wrongdoing. We see both senses of this word, for instance, in uh, with with David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan, the prophet Nathan came to him and said, you are the man. And he was convicted. He was convicted in the sense that he was declared guilty as guilty of a particular crime. But David also felt that conviction in his soul. And he acknowledged he felt he came under conviction. He acknowledged in his spirit that he was wrong and he felt sorry for what he had done. He felt remorseful and repentant. The Holy Spirit convicts the world in both senses of that word. Well, how, how does he convict the world? One way is directly. He convicts directly in the heart and soul of a person. I'll give you one example. A woman named Jackie. Not the Jackie that we know here in this congregation. But a different woman named Jackie. Testified that all of a sudden... She had an overpowering sense and realization that her sins would be the death of her. These are her words. God came to my house, she says. I was having a very unspiritual kind of night. The TV was on. The morning was hours away. My thoughts were boring and typical until they turned on me. As suddenly and randomly as Paul was struck blind on the Damascus Road, I had the unsettling thought that my sin would be the death of me. She says she's having a typical night, nothing spiritual in her mind. And all of a sudden, she comes under conviction of sin. How does that happen? That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit working on her. I read this story a couple years ago, and this is, this is a prayer. This has now become a prayer of mine for people who I know, who I want to come to Christ, that they will feel that conviction that their sins will be the death of them, so that it will push them to the hope that we have in Christ. 
How does the Spirit convict the world? He convicts directly, but he also convicts through us. He convicts the world through us. Look at the connection between verses 7 and 8. Jesus says in verse 7, If I go, I will send him to you. I'm going to send the Spirit to you, verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and justice. Or judge. He's coming to us, and he will also convict the world. And often that conviction comes through us in the way we live our lives and through our, and through our witness. It comes through the preaching of the word, for instance. It comes through us witnessing to other people, telling others about Christ. It comes through our changed lives, through our perseverance in times of difficulty. It comes through our joy when we shouldn't seemingly have joy. It comes through our otherworldly responses, our unnormal, abnormal, unnormal, unusual responses to situations where people don't normally respond that way, where we respond in a different manner. Well, how does he convict the, or why does he convict the world? Why does he convict the world? So that the people of the world will repent. He convicts the world so that the world will repent. How can a person who belongs to the world ever stop belonging to the world and become a follower of Jesus? Part of the answer is that the Holy Spirit convicts them of where they are and of where they need to be. Like Jackie, who we just mentioned, who suddenly knew that her sin would be the death of her, and she repented and she put her faith in Christ. She's a different woman today. I'll give you another example. Anyone, has anyone here ever heard of R.C. Sproul? R.C. Sproul. Some of you maybe. Uh, he's he just recently passed away, but he's a he was a uh, scholar, theologian, uh, a seminary professor um, in college. Um, when he was not a Christian in college, a football player uh, led him to the Lord in uh, in the freshman dorms. And the football player uh, didn't go to the Gospels. He used uh, Ecclesiastes, actually, to witness to R.C. Sproul. And as, he, as they were working through Ecclesiastes, uh, Sproul says that one verse in particular hit him between the eyes, and it was this verse. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Now, I don't know if you've ever used this verse in witnessing before. <laughs> I have not. This may not seem like a glamorous verse, but the Spirit used it to bring Sproul to faith and repentance. Sproul says that he saw himself in an instant. He saw himself as that fallen tree, that he, would, that he had fallen over, and unless something happened, he would remain there and he, he would remain where he was, and he would just rot. He was convicted by this verse that nothing could change his situation except for God. And so he said he went to his knees to pray and to repent. And his life was completely changed. That is the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's always interesting to me to read about conversion stories of different people. And it's different verses. I mean, the Lord uses all kinds of verses to save um, people the triune god and, and why you know it just points to the evidence that there is a divine being behind the word who is working in people's lives conversion is not a natural experience it's a supernatural experience the father the son and the holy spirit are ever seeking to stir people to faith and repentance jesus came to seek and to save the lost and he sends then his spirit in his stead to convict the world of its sinfulness so that unbelievers will become believers. 
So it says he he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and justice. Judgment. I keep saying justice. Judgment. Verse 9. About sin, he goes on to explain, he convicts the world about sin because they do not believe in me. He will convict the world of sin. And specifically and especially, he will convict them of their sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ. We, we believers, we were of the world. But now we are no longer of the world. Why? How? It's because we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of our faith. That's the difference. We are no longer of the world because we believe on Jesus. We believe in his name, in his work on the cross. We believe that he is the Son of God and the Lord of life and that he is coming back again one day. We believe that he is who he says he is. Unbelief is what keeps people from forgiveness of sin. Unbelief is what keeps people from eternal life and from heaven. John 3.18, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Jesus repeatedly pointed out unbelief in his ministry. John 5.38, you don't believe in me. John 6.36, you don't believe in me. John 8.45, you don't believe in me. John 10.25, you don't believe in me. The Spirit convicts the world of their unbelief. The Spirit also convicts the world about righteousness. Verse 10, he convicts the world about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. He convicts the world of their lack of righteousness is what he's convicting them of, how they don't measure up to God's standards. You know, do you know the joke about how Moses is the greatest sinner in all the world? Because he broke all Ten Commandments at once, right? Remember, he broke all Ten Commandments at once. The truth is, the world breaks all the commandments all of the time. No other gods? Yeah, well, the world worships money and fame and power. The world worships sports, worships their job or whatever. No other gods? That one's broken. I read a, I read a <clears throat> crime novel a crime novel recently that really gave a great picture of idolatry, of a, of a family idolizing money. I'm just going to read this snatch from this book. Uh, the family's name is Judd, Judd. The Judds worship money. They made it a stand-in for all the other qualities of life. If you can be nice or have money, take the money. If you can be brave or have money, take the money. If you can have friends or have money, take the money. They're like that. They don't even hide it. Take the money. Pulling $200,000 in cash out of a safe deposit box in front of Bill Judd Jr. would be like pulling Jesus Christ out of a box in front of the Pope. You know, there's the substitute, right? We substitute other things for Christ, whether it be money, fame, sports, power, whatever. What about another commandment? No vain or light use of the Lord's name. Our culture takes the Lord's name in vain all the time. That's broken. Honor your parents. That's often broken. No murder. Many murders. And even if you hate someone, it's the same as murder. Broken. No adultery. Our culture is filled with sexual immorality. Broken. No theft. Have you ever, and probably you've never seen this, but have you ever been at work and you see someone on their phone scrolling through social media through several you know, for several minutes? You've probably never seen that. But, you know, that's, uh, that's, 
they're getting paid to do something else, and instead, they're, what are they doing? They're stealing time from their employer. No theft, that's, that's broken. No lying, broken. I was watching one of the Spider-Man movies recently with uh, one of my kids, and uh, at the end of the movie, Peter Parker makes this promise to uh, his girlfriend's dying dad that he will not date his daughter because it will endanger her, right? And then her dad dies, and a little bit later, Peter Parker makes the comment that the best kind of promises are the ones that are broken type of thing. So, you know, I don't think that's true, but, I mean, you know, lie, no lying, um, that, that commandment's broken off. No coveting other people's stuff. I was listening to old songs on Pandora the other day, and uh, Rick Springfield came up. Oh, I wish that I had Jesse's girl. Well, that no coveting. That's, that's broken right there. Most people don't like to think of themselves as bad. Always trying to justify our actions. Um, whether by comparing ourselves to others, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or by detailing the extenuating circumstances. I, you know, I had to break the law this time because of this factor and this factor. I mean, so I'm justified in what I did. The world thinks of itself as righteous and just and good and decent, or at least good enough, but the Spirit comes to show that our righteousness does not measure up. It's righteousness, the world's righteousness, to put it in the words of Isaiah, is like filthy rags. Isaiah 54, 6. All of us have become like something unclean. And all our righteous acts, our best actions, are like, polluted, are like a polluted garment. So notice that he convicts the world of its pitiful righteousness because Jesus is going to the Father and the disciples will no longer see him. When Jesus was on earth, he convicted the world of its lack of righteousness. Now that he is leaving, the Spirit is taking over. And then verse 11. He convicts the world about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Spirit convicts the world about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The ruler of the world is Satan. It's the devil. The devil has been judged by God and he has been condemned. Notice that Jesus refers to him in verse 11, not as the devil, but as the ruler of this world. As the ruler goes, so goes the followers. The world is shown to be following a condemned ruler. Believers, we are not alone. The Holy Spirit dwells within us and is working in this world and through us so that we can truly be salt and light to those around us to convict the world of sin and to vindicate us as we walk in righteousness. The the world is out to condemn us of our stances, of our beliefs, of our biblical beliefs, but the Spirit turns the tables on that. We see stuff like that in the book of Acts, for instance. Peter, on the day of, of Pentecost, the, the, the people who are gathering are mocking the disciples for what's going on. And Peter turns the tables and explains that you killed the Lord of glory. You killed the Lord of glory. And then the people repent. They're convicted. They're convicted and they repent. And 3,000 join the church that day. Or Peter before the Sanhedrin, he's hauled up. He and John are hauled up before the Sanhedrin and convicted of not following the, the Sanhedrin's uh, commands. Peter and John don't care. They turn it around and say, hey, we follow the Lord. And you killed the Lord of glory. You, you killed uh, the Son of God. Paul with Festus. Paul supposedly is the prisoner, and he comes before Governor Festus, and he starts talking to Festus about uh, sin, righteousness, and 
judgment, um, about self-control and so forth. And Festus says, okay, that's enough for now. I'll talk to you some other time. A few days ago, Pastor Ryan emailed me and a few other guys a story about the Tampa Bay Rays, a Major League Baseball team. A week ago Saturday, the team was uh, glorifying, had chosen that day to glorify gay pride with a custom-designed logo on their, on their uniform. At least five Christian players on that team respectfully declined to wear the uniform with that logo. They weren't angry or demonstrative in their decision, and they explained their position in as gentle and kind a way as possible. But I'm guessing that they were slandered and that they were excoriated in the media. So who's on trial there? Is it, is it those Christian players or is it the public? In social media, it will probably look like the players are on trial. But from God's perspective, and his is the true perspective, it is the public who is on trial. The Spirit, through these believers, is pointing out sin for those who have eyes to see. Their stand points to the reality of a God who exists and who has expectations about how we are to live, no matter what the world says about that. Ultimately, it is the world who is on trial when Christians in the Spirit speak truth in love and when Christians live according to truth and not according to the dictates of the world. Why the Holy Spirit? He convicts the world. He convicts the world. Well, we move on then to our third point. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth. Why the Holy Spirit? He guides us into truth. Verse 13 begins, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, this doesn't mean all the truth that there is. What does it mean? It means all the truth that we need to know in order to live well in God's world. The Holy Spirit guides the the church and believers into all they need to know to live out this life in a Christ-pleasing manner and to prepare for eternity. The verse goes on to say, For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. And this is exactly what Jesus said about himself during his ministry. I do not speak of my own, but I speak what the Father tells me to say. I, I speak from the Father. In the same way, so the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not speak on his own. He does not contradict the Son. He does not contradict the Father. He comes and speaks on behalf of both. The message we receive from Father, Son, and Spirit is all of one piece and without contradiction. It's all truth. Jesus didn't tell us one thing, and then the Holy Spirit comes and says, no, 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 it's this way. Perhaps you've had the experience where you've dealt with a company before. And you talk to one individual and they say, this is the way the billing's going to go. And then you talk to another individual and they, they completely contradict what you heard before. My wife has spent hours and hours on the phone dealing with companies because they can't get their stories straight. Thank you for all that work on your behalf. Appreciate that. Be assured, Jesus tells us, that the Holy Spirit whom I... Whom I will send to you will teach you the things I teach you and the things I want you, I want taught to you. Verse 13 goes on to say, He will also declare to you what is to come. Even as Jesus taught about the future, about how He will return, about how there will be the final judgment, about the eternal destinies of Christians and of those who refuse to believe, even so the Holy Spirit keeps the second coming of Jesus Christ and the final judgment before the eyes of His followers. And then verses 14 to 15 says, he will glorify me. The Spirit will glorify me. He will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. 
The teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit is constantly and continually pointing to Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin is found in Christ. Deliverance from sin and Satan and eternal misery is found in Christ. The Holy Spirit is just like the Father and the Lord Jesus. He desires everyone to be saved, everyone to receive the gift of salvation and not to pay for their own sins in hell when Jesus has already paid for those sins on the cross. And so... Because the Spirit is desirous of that, he is constantly pointing unbelievers and believers alike to the only way to be saved through Christ, through faith in Christ. He's like the person in the burning building who has found the one way out, and he's, and he's yelling to everybody, this way, this way, turn around, don't go that way, this way. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's constantly pointing people, Christ, Christ, Christ. It's not your own resources. It's not your false religion. It's not just doing your own thing. It's Christ. It's Christ. Go to Christ. Not only is salvation found in Jesus Christ, everything we need is found in Christ. And so he constantly points us to Christ. He's constantly glorifying and magnifying Christ. Many believers do not appreciate all that we have in Jesus for living this life now, for joy, for happiness and peace and strength and courage and wisdom, for help in our relationships and our difficulties. And the Holy Spirit keeps pointing us to him, magnifying him. Christ is your answer. He is your help. He is your wisdom. The Spirit glorifies the Son. So the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. What does that mean, practically speaking, for you and me? Well, this is how the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit gets played out in history. First, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit enters into believers and he begins to guide them into more truth filling them so that they can preach the gospel with understanding to the Jews and Gentiles in Jerusalem and then throughout the Roman Empire. But then second, the Holy Spirit guides the authors of the New Testament into truth as they write their gospels and their letters that would soon be recognized as scripture. But then third, the Spirit guides us into all truth. He guides you into all truth as you study the word, as you read the word. We refer to this scriptural teaching as illumination, illumination. As you sincerely study the Bible in an attitude of humility, the Holy Spirit helps you to understand it more and more. Illumination isn't just a fancy word for natural learning, learning the natural way. This is a divine experience. It's a supernatural experience whereby the spirit of God himself opens your minds and the eyes of your faith to apprehend spiritual truth that unbelievers would read and not understand. Many people read the Bible, but don't apprehend it, don't, don't comprehend it. They know what it teaches. They might even understand the logic of what is taught, but they fail to believe it. They fail to apprehend the beauty of what is taught. They fail to apprehend that it is truth. We read the Bible to get the truth into our minds, but it is the Spirit who takes that truth and moves it, what, 12 inches down to our hearts. So if it's the Spirit who is our teacher, if it's the Spirit who illuminates us, what can we do to better apprehend God's truth? Well, there are things we can do, and first of all is study the Bible. We need to be in the Word. Um, If the Spirit carries the truth from our minds to our hearts, we can at least get it into our minds. That is to say, study the Word, study the Scriptures, read it regularly, ponder it, memorize it. Many, Many of the verses that are most precious to me are the ones that I first memorized. 
because they're in my mind and I think about them and I meditate on them. And the Spirit uses them to, to teach me truth, to better understand the truth that is God's truth. Take notes on Scripture. Get the Word into your mind. If God's Word isn't in your mind, there's nothing for the Spirit to take to the heart. Read and study the Bible with humility, with a desire to learn, with a desire to hear from God. You know, I don't, I don't approach Bible reading the way I approach any other media. You know, with any other media, whether it be TV, radio, newspaper, book, you know, scientific study or whatever, I'm always, you know, it's critical thinking. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm evaluating, is this true? Is this accurate? Or is this false? I, I never approach the scriptures that way because it's always true. It's always true. The scriptures are the standard by which I evaluate everything else. It's the truth by which I evaluate everything else. And then pray for illumination. He's the one who teaches you. Ask the Spirit for help in understanding what you're studying. I often do that, especially when, when I'm teaching, when I'm working on a passage to teach or preach. I'm asking the Holy Spirit, help me to understand, help me to understand how it applies to me and applies to others. We are... You and I are just as close to Jesus as the first generation of Christians was. The link between them and Jesus was the Holy Spirit, and he is the same link between you and Jesus. John 13 tells us that Jesus loved his own who were in the world, and he showed that love in John 13 by washing their feet, but he also showed that love a little bit later by giving them the Holy Spirit. And he has given each of us his Holy Spirit, he loves you just as much as he loved Peter and Andrew and James and John, as much as he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The Holy Spirit is a gift from the Lord Jesus for your good. God has taken up residence within you through his spirit in order to confront the world through you, in order to bring a, world to the, a witness to the world so that they will have the opportunity to convert, to believe and repent and become children of God. And the spirit has also come to you to teach you, to lead you into truth that will change your life. So be a witness. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You have power because the Holy Spirit is in you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So be a witness and be a serious student of the Bible. And remember that the Spirit is always with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. You have given us tremendous gifts. The gift of your Son, the gift of your spirit, the gift of the scriptures. Uh, we are grateful. Um, help us to be cognizant of the spirit within us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be serious students of scripture and that we would be, and that your spirit would continue to illumine us as to the truth of scripture, guiding us into, into the greater truth of scripture, and that we would be witnesses, that we would be telling others about Jesus, telling others about what you have done in our lives, and that through us other people might come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are richly blessed. Help us to understand better our blessings. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.